You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again. I'm Corey. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Third. Really grateful to welcome all of you here who are in the room and those of you who are joining us online. Um, I do want to just say for a moment, address what Brooke mentioned earlier, um, that you know, there's, there's just so much violence in our society these days. Um, it's numbing, the, the number of violent gun deaths we hear about. But just on Friday, it's it just so much closer to home when it's someone that, that some of us know. And um, Lucia Brummer, who's an eighth grader at Cuyacasin, was really senselessly and tragically murdered on Friday, and I know that there's actually even a couple of you in the room who, who are good friends with her. And so it's, it feels really different when it's, when it's that personal. I know the ripple effects are pretty huge in a lot of our families. So I don't, I don't know. I want you to understand there's not an easy answer to this. Christians don't have an easy answer to the kind of uh, sorrow that you all are experiencing. Um, and it would be really stupid for me to suggest that. But here is what I do know. I, I know that, the, that what we are celebrating this week, what we're, we're about to in, walk through together this Holy Week, is that, is that God in the person of Jesus has actually entered into the most horrific human experience of sorrow, pain, and suffering. That in the person of Jesus, God actually endured this with us. He bears our sorrow with us. God in the person of Jesus actually was horrifically murdered as an innocent person. And so... What we know is that God is in the sorrow with us and that on Easter, we look to the hope that we have that one day, even the most terrible sorrow and the most inexplicable tragedies that we just don't understand, that even these most horrible things will one day be made right. They one, they one day will be redeemed. So let's, let's look to that hope even, even in the sorrow that I know that you all are experiencing. So let, let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, we do pray for um, the Bremer family. We cry out for mercy. Uh, we cry out for peace. We cry out um, that you would comfort what feels like inconsolable, unhealable pain. Lord, we pray for um, our own families and students who knew the Bremers and who, know, who knew Lucia. Uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come alongside as comforter to them. We pray that in this holy week that we would truly contemplate the degree of suffering and sorrow that you endured with us in Jesus. And we pray that you would give us hope. Lord, we do pray um, for now the, the time where we come to the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would be those who don't just hear, but that we respond with all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear God's word read by Frank Faust um, from Galatians in Matthew. Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23a. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, 
and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it do for anyone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone do in exchange for their soul? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we are uh, at the end of this sermon series that we've been in for, gosh, nine weeks now. So this is the ninth in a series that we're calling The Church in a Time of Crisis. We've been looking together at the fruit of the Spirit. We've been saying that this crisis that we've lived through this last year has been sort of like an apocalypse. It's been a disclosing or a revealing. It's exposed a lot of things in us and about us and about the church that maybe we don't, haven't really been happy to see. I mean, we've seen things about the American church at large, that there's maybe times where the church has been more formed by the wrong things than the way of Jesus. Uh, and we've seen in ourselves that we have often, in times of stress, we see stuff come out of us, like envy and hatred and anxiety and despair and selfishness and dissensions and rage. We see things come out of us that we wish weren't there, things that Paul calls the works of the flesh. And so, We've used this time of Lent to ask God, as Christians have done throughout the centuries, for renewal, that he would come in and reform us, that he would form us away from the image of the world and more into the character of Jesus. That's what the fruits of the Spirit are, being formed in the character of Jesus. And that ultimately is the very best thing we have to offer to a world in crisis, not ourselves, but Christ in us, Jesus in us and working through us. And so I hope, I really hope, family, that, that this series will has and will continue to kind of stir up a desire in you to, to have the character of Jesus flow in and through you, that you might be formed out of the image of the world and more into the image of Christ. So we've looked so far at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today... We're looking at self-control, self-control in a time of self-fulfillment. I wonder how you feel about this virtue of self-control. It's not, you know, the most exciting or inspiring maybe of the other virtues that we've looked at, but I think it's really needed because honestly, we all, we all have a part of our lives that is a little bit out of control, all of us, everyone here, hopefully. In fact, I want to invite you to think about that right now. What area or part of your life is a bit out of control. Uh, it could be a, a negative emotion. It could be an issue you have with your words. It could be a thought pattern in your life. It could be your anger. It could be your appetites. It could be a relationship pattern that you're in or a habit that you're trying to keep in, in check. Everyone has something. In fact, if, if you can't think of anything right now that is out of control in your life, it's probably your pride 
that is out of control. Um, so maybe, maybe, write, maybe write that one down. Um, but we all have something. It's just part of the human experience. I, you know, as a kid who grew up in the suburbs of Chicago uh, and practically worshiped Michael Jordan, I just loved this summer watching that 10-part um, documentary that ESPN, ESPN put out um, called The Last Dance. And a couple things stood out to me watching that that I came away with. First of all, I came away with the fact that Michael Jordan truly is the GOAT. Uh, he is truly the greatest of all time. Um, and it's just, there's no contest. But what was, what was interesting to me that I learned is that it wasn't just his sheer raw talent that made him the GOAT. It was his self-discipline. It was his massive self-control. This guy was like a self-control ninja when it came to training his body, training his appetites, training uh, his team. His self-control is what made him so great. But the other thing that I realized and sort of came away with is that though he was such a master of, of, of his body and his athleticism on the court, he demonstrated a great struggle with that same self-mastery in other parts of his life. His family, his relationships, his appetites, his gambling, uh, his, you know, his, his anger. He was, as is all of us, a person of contradictions a person of contradictions. We all have areas that are out of control. What's, what's yours? Are you thinking about it right now? So what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, first, I think it's important to note that scriptures teach that we are people of desire. We're people of desire. All of us have passions and longings and appetites deep within us. We all have relational and sexual and vocational passions and longings, and energies inside of us as human beings that drive us and, and lead us to, to pursue them in various ways. This is part of what makes us human, is these deep passions and longings within us. And actually, these desires are good things. These passions are part of what makes us human. But as the book of Ecclesiastes points out, we also deeply struggle with what to do with these desires, what to do with these energies and passions in us how to rightly order them and pursue them in a way that's good. Often it feels like our desires are at war within us. So um, Ron Rollheiser, the Catholic writer, writes this, there is within us a fundamental disease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives in the marrow of our bones and in the deep recesses of the soul. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. And then he says this, spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire, what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us, that is our spirituality. So what he's saying is, is that the battle of being human is partly about what we do with our deep desires. We're all struggling with that. What do we do with our longings, our lusts, our passions, our energies, the deep things that are inside of us. And there's a lot of different approaches that you'll run into in the world about what you as a human being should do with the deep desires that are within you. One of the approaches that we encounter all the time is really the approach of hedonism, what, what, what I call releasing our desires, releasing our desires. That's the, that's the way of hedonism, to gratify your desires in a pursuit of personal freedom. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, gosh, that's a bit creepy. That describes <laughs> our, our life pretty well, doesn't it? Now, now we've talked about this in our, in, our, in, our, in our series, is that when a society like ours loses any sense of like the big T truth or the big G good, when we lose any sense of like a shared sense of meaning and truth and goodness, then what happens inevitably is that we then all begin to atomize and isolate. So each person pursues their own little g good and their little t truth. Life becomes about pursuing your own definition and understanding of goodness and happiness. We see this writ large in our society. One social commentator calls our current cultural moment project self, project self. So society exists as a blank canvas for my own self-definition, my own expression, my own enjoyment. And I determine what's good, what matters for me, and society exists to maximize my own personal possibility. And if anything stands in the way, then I'll just go to war with it. I'll call it oppression. I'll say it's restricting my freedom. This is gratification of desire as the ultimate good. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, but but one of the big problems of this, and as anyone who's ever struggled with addiction will tell you, is that the unrestricted gratification of desire often does not lead to personal freedom. It actually leads to enslavement, addiction. There's a really heavy and pretty serious dark movie that is actually a, a, a great film, but I wouldn't watch it with your kids or anything. It's called A Star is Born starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. And it's a story about a man who loses control in pursuit of his desires. And the, the song, the, the song that was made famous by the film that Lady Gaga wrote called Shallow says this, tell me something, boy, aren't you tr tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? It's a story about how the unbridled pursuit of desire ultimately wreaks untold destruction on a person's life, ultimately destroying the person himself. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, like a city whose walls are broken down is a person who lacks self-control. In ancient society, a city, all cities had walls. They had walls because it was the security system. It, it provided protection against enemies, against marauders, against wild animals. In order for the people inside to flourish, you needed the external walls. And the writer of Proverbs is saying, without self-control, we are basically unprotected. We're unprotected from evil. Our desires can become demanding masters that enslave and even destroy us. You know, I think it's interesting that in many ways, the pandemic has demonstrated the poverty of this cultural worldview of hedonism. Because right now, at least, who are the heroes in our culture right now? Who are the people that we're celebrating? Not the people who are selfish, not the people who are writing the rules for themselves. It's the people who are choosing to sacrifice themselves, sacrifice their freedom, sacrifice their liberty. People who are choosing to, you know, frontline workers, healthcare workers. These are the people that we are celebrating. The greatest deeds of courage are often deeds of self-control, not of gratifying my desire to pursue my freedom, but restricting my freedom for the sake of love. And so what we see is that this way of releasing our desires never leads to a life 
of flourishing and freedom. Well, there's another option that we're often given that somehow, sometimes in reaction to hedonism, and that's the way of moralism, repressing desire. There's this old um, Bob Newhart skit that was, came out back in the 70s. You can still see it on YouTube. Um, but Bob Newhart plays a therapist. And, and he's, in this, uh, he's in this therapy office, and a woman comes in, and she says, you know, I've got all these problems. I'm having just a hard, hard time controlling my habits and my relationships and my thought life, and I don't know what to do. And Bob Newhart says, that's fine, fine, I understand. I've got two words for you that will really help you here. Just listen carefully, please. Listen carefully now. Stop it! <laughs> stop it! She says, what? Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> Just stop it! Why are you doing that? Are you so, and it's ridiculous, of course. But in some ways, it is a caricature of, of this way of repressing desire. It is about change empowered by the mastery of the will. Right? Remember last week I mentioned that the Greeks despised the virtue of gentleness and humility? Well, they actually loved the virtue of self-control. Self-control was like the most important thing to them. In fact, Socrates considered self-control to be the foundation of all virtue. Xenophon, a student of Socrates, wrote, shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue and first lay this foundation firmly in his soul? So this is a vision of self-control as self mastery, right? Control yourself, discipline your habits, repress your passions, keep them under control. There have been many teachers of this method of moralism and religion and stoicism, you know, throughout the ages. There's many modern teachers of this method. In fact, there's a guy named Jocko Willink, who's a former Navy SEAL, and he has a massive social media following, has a huge number of followers on his podcast. Uh, and his big mantra is discipline equals freedom. You could buy a big t-shirt, bumper sticker, right? I actually like Jocko. I think he's pretty awesome. <laughs> but, um, but his basic vision is grow up, be a man, suck it up, stop it. <laughs> I mean, that's basically Jocko, right? The Greeks would have loved Jocko. Uh, as well as other modern teachers of self-mastery. Master your emotions, master your career, your body, your time, your appetites. Get rid of the things you don't like. Pursue the things that you do. Y'all, the problem with all this stop it approach is that it just doesn't go deep enough. The way of moralism, the way of religion, believes that you can change just through sheer willpower and external behavior modification. And guess who had a lot to say about that? the Lord Jesus. <laughs> you know, there was a group of Pharisees at the time. They were, they were like masters of self-control. They were squeaky clean. And what did Jesus tell, say about the Pharisees? He was not very complimentary. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Oh, Jesus, very serious critique, right? And he was saying is the Pharisees, at least on the surface, were extremely self-controlled. They were like the opposite of hedonists. They had everything together. They, they were masters of the self. 
And yet in reality, Jesus says, you are so focused on external change and your performative behavior that your religion and morality has become a force of oppression, especially of the poor and the vulnerable. You are living lives of hypocrisy. You're nursing all kinds of evil in your heart, doing violence to people rather than lifting them up in the love of God. Richard Loveless says this. He said, the problem with the Pharisees is that their understanding of sin focused on behavioral externals, which they could eliminate from their lives with a little willpower, listen to this, but ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility below the surface. And see, those are the things that really are killing us. So this is the problem with the moralism stop it approach is that it never addresses the heart. I can take a rubber ball and press it together and restrain the ball, make it smaller, make it flatter, make it take up less space. But then what happens when I release my hands? It pops right back into normal because I am not changing the ball. I am just restraining the ball with external pressure. And this is the problem of moralism. This is the problem of legalism. This is the problem of religion. This is the problem is that we seek to restrain our behavior without internally changing the heart. Self-control is self-mastery is just a form of godliness that denies its power. It, 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 shame will stop you temporarily until you get back into your dark place again. Guilt will stop you just for a short time until the guilt wears off. The praise of other people will motivate you for a little bit of time until that praise goes away. But it gives no power for real change. Self-control is restraining desire, doesn't actually change. So. You see these two methods, these two approaches? Releasing desire, the way of hedonism, repressing desire, the way of moralism. On surface, they appear to be opposites, do they not? It's like Ned Flanders and Homer Simpson. You know, they seem like on, on opposite sides of, of the spectrum in, approach to, in, a, in the way that they approach desire. But in reality, they're both rooted in the same thing. The first is about gratifying desire for the sake of the self, and the second is about controlling desire for the sake of the self. But what holds them in the common? The self. They're both about project self. And so we immediately see that this is what makes biblical self-control so different. Is that biblical self-control is not about repressing desire, it's not about, re about releasing desire, it is about redirecting desire. It's the way of Jesus stewarding desire for the sake of the self we immediately see that Paul is treating self-control differently than the Greeks in, the, in Galatians 5. Remember what I said, Greeks held self-control the highest virtue. It was the foundation of them all. If you, kids, I don't know if you like trains, um, what's in the front of the train? Engine, what's the back of the train? Caboose. For the Greeks, self-control was the engine that pulled all the other virtues along because all the virtues were accomplished in your life through willpower, through self-mastery, right? Paul, in his list of virtues, in this really radical way, he actually puts love in the first of the list. He says love, the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of, that changes the heart. Love is what motivates and empowers all the other virtues. And self-control is on the end when we order our loves rightly. So it's just a beautiful way. Remember, Paul even begins with this section. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Incredible words. Our culture views freedom as negative, freedom from oppression, freedom from the law, freedom from restrictions. But Paul, the Bible views freedom as positive, freedom for love, freedom for love of God, freedom for love of neighbor, freedom to be the true selves that we were called to be. Freedom is for the sake of love so that we can sacrificially serve. This is biblical self-control, friends. Not self-mastery, but sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of love. Not releasing our desires, not repressing them, but redirecting our desires for the love of God and neighbor. Jesus said it himself. He says, the person who seeks to gain their life will lose it. The person who orients their whole life around themselves, either trying to gratify their desires or control their desires, but it's all about them, that person will end up losing their life. But the person who loses their life, who takes up their cross, who gives themselves sacrificially for God and neighbor as Jesus does for us, that's the person who finds life. C.S. Lewis paraphrased Jesus' words this way. He says, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This is a completely revolutionary, radical, upside down understanding of what to do with our desires. We're not called to release them. We're not called to repress them, but redirect them, taking all of our energies and passions and longings and desires and steward them sacrificially for the love of God and for love of neighbor. This is the way to life. So how do we do that? I mean, this is a tall order. Like this, you do not come into a life like this naturally. You do not wake up in the morning and say, oh, what am I gonna do today? I think I'm gonna sacrificially steward my life for the love of God and neighbor. That just, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not what we do naturally. And so what do we need? Well, we need power and we need practice. We need the gift of self-control from God through the gospel and we need to practice and cultivate the discipline of self-control. So let's look at both of those. First, we need to receive the power of self-control through the gospel. The fundamental problem with the moralism approach, as I said earlier, is that it vastly underestimates the power of sin within us. Paul says this in Titus 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. He says, we think we're in control of our desires, but actually they're in control of us. We are mastered, we're enslaved, we're stuck. He even uses the word, we're dead in our transgressions and sins in Ephesians 2. This is why pure willpower and self-mastery will never work because we're just up against too much power, the power of sin and rebellion inside of us. Peter says we're up against the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Puritan John Flavel says, we are more able to stop the sun in its course than by our own power rule and order our hearts. Have any of y'all tried to stop the sun in its course? He says, it's harder to do that than to, than to rule and order your own heart. So external behavior modification can temporarily restrain behavior, but it cannot change the heart. So what we need is not restraint. What we need is resurrection. Fleming Rutledge says, Jesus was never out to make bad people good. 
She was out to make dead people alive. He was out to make old, people old into people who are new. That's what Jesus aims to do. And that's why Jesus does what he does on Palm Sunday and the, and the events of Holy Week. I mean, talk about self-control. Jesus tells his friends what he's about to do, how he has to die. And Peter, his best friend, says, no, you'll never do it. I'm gonna stop you. Jesus says, no, I must commit to the mission that God has given me. He's on this donkey about to ride it down into the Jerusalem, the place he knows where he will be arrested, persecuted, flogged, tortured, and killed. And he sets his face like flint on the mission that God has called him to. Jesus takes all of his passions and energies, everything God has given him, and he stewards it all in sacrificial love for us and for the world. The first Adam chose self-fulfillment. The second Adam, Jesus, chooses self-sacrifice. The first Adam orients his desires around the gratification of the self. The second Adam, Jesus, orients his desires around love, sacrificial love for the world. Why does Jesus do this? Not to make us good people. You know, if that was just the sum total of Jesus' mission, he could have just been Jocko or Socrates, right? Jesus' mission was not to just make us good. His, his mission was to make us new. And so that's why he dies and rises to rescue us and to save us from the powers that were destroying us. He destroys the powers of sin that were holding us captive and he rises to life and gives us new power through the resurrection and the spirit of God in us so that we now can do what we could not previously do. This is why Paul goes on to say, when the kindness and love of God our savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God takes the power of Jesus in the resurrection, the same power that will one day renew all of creation, and he puts it in you. By the, the deposit of the Spirit, he puts it in you so that you can now live the kind of life that was formerly impossible. It's like, I know I've used this analogy before, but it's much more like Spider-Man than like Iron Man. You know, Iron Man is just a rich guy with a juiced up suit. That's all he is. You know, anybody could probably be Iron Man if you had enough money. You know, and that's the way of moralism. It's that if you could just have the right techniques, the right tools, the right external modifications, then you can do it. But Spider-Man is not about the externals. It is about an internal, comprehensive, ontological change that comes by getting bit. That's called new birth. <laughs> Does this make sense what I'm saying here? Or am I getting way off track here? I'm trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to help this make sense to you. This is not self-control, self-mastery. It is self-control by conversion, by grace by getting a new power from the Holy Spirit so that you can now do through Christ what you could never do on your own. Have you received that gift, friends? Have you received that gift? Are you still trying to live independently? Are you still trying to master your life to do what you want? The way of life is the way of surrender, receiving his grace in the gospel. Well, how do we practice self-control? Just two, two quick things here, how we can practice this. The first is that you can claim your identity as a new self in Christ. 
You know, a friend of mine who works with people who struggle with addiction said that it's important that people change the way they think about themselves when they're battling temptation. You know, just, just say that you're trying to quit smoking. You smoke for a long time, you're trying to quit. Somebody comes up to you, they say, hey man, you want to smoke? You could say, oh man, I really, really want to, but I'm just really trying hard to stop. See, when you do that, you're actually conceding that your identity is a smoker, but you are just like trying to have willpower to stop. Another way to handle it is the guy comes up to you and says, hey man, you want to smoke? You say, oh no, I'm not a smoker. I don't smoke. Do you see the, the huge difference there? You're actually making a new claim about your identity. And when you do that again and again, you actually train your habits to think about yourself differently, you begin to be able to act on the new identity that is yours. And this is what Paul often says. He says, after he names the fruits of the Spirit, he says, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. Saying when you are in a situation where self-control is required, begin with your identity. Say, that is no longer who I am. I am not a sinner who is bound to sin. I am a saint who is bound to Christ, who sometimes sins, but who is bound to Christ. And those who belong to Christ have crucified its passions, the sin with its desires. This is now who I am. I no longer have to sin, I am free. You know, sometimes you even have to like have a, have a liturgy of sorts, a personal liturgy to say to yourself, to claim that identity that is yours in Christ. Dick Woodward, who was pastor at Williamsburg Community Chapel for a long time, had this thing that he memorized that he shared with others called his spiritual secrets. And it went like this. Whenever he was in a situation where he was struggling or tempted or depressed or whatever, he would say, I'm not, but he is, and I'm in him, and he is in me. I can't, but he can, and I am in him, and he is in me. I'm not able, but he is able, and I am in him, and he is in me. I didn't, but he did, because I was in him, and he was in me. And you can see how different that is than self-mastery. It is actually admitting your powerlessness and drawing on the power of Christ who is now in you. So claim your new identity. And the final thing, create structures of support, support structures for a self-controlled life. You know, there's a myth that weak people need structures and systems to live a self-controlled life, but strong people should just be able to rely on their willpower alone. Well, that's just dumb. It really is. The success of the 12-step programming shows that it rejects this idea. It, it, it actually begins with an admission of powerlessness and a, and a pronouncement of need for God to come and help. And then it invites the help of other people around you, community and sponsors and new habits and meetings. We need structures of support to live a self-controlled life. Any great athlete will tell you that you don't just become a champion through talent. You need support structures. You need boundaries. Uh, you, you need eating habits and practice habits and submitting to the authority of a coach and the accountability of a team. That's what makes you flourish and thrive. And so you need support structures to live a life of freedom. So think about what support structures you have in your life. Remember that thing you were thinking about earlier? An area of struggle of control that you have that feels a little out of control? What support structures are in your life to help you with that? What friend knows about this? They can ask you about it. And that has the same vision of a godly life that you do and wants to help you get there. Is there anyone in your life that you can rely on for that? Do you have community that is able to help you orient around love of God and neighbor? Do you know yourself? You know, I once heard um, this acronym BHALT. Have you heard that? BHALT, bored, 
hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Almost every mistake you make, everything you regret happens when you're one of those things. Bored, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. (laughs) Know yourself well enough that when you find yourself in one or more of those situations that you have a plan. You actually have a plan of what to do. (laughs) You know, examine your habits. You know, uh, maybe you need to write a rule of life. A rule of life is a set of habits you can commit to in order to grow in your love of God and neighbor. Justin Early, our covenant partner, wrote a whole book about the rule of life called The Common Rule. Read it, study it with a group. Maybe you need some serious accountability. Maybe something you're battling is so tough that you need support. Maybe you need a counselor. Maybe you need a 12-step group. We have things to help you. Come and talk to us. But the point is that you need structures of support to live a life of freedom. So let me close, friends. Self-control is not about morality. It's not about religion. It's not about repressing desire. It's not about restricting passion. It is about, res- it is about redirecting the passions of your heart towards Christ and others to find life. It is a sacrificial stewardship of the self for God and neighbor. Jesus used all that was within him, all of his glory, all of his passion, all of his energy to pour it out for others. And now he invites us in union with him to do the same, to live a life of love. So do you feel like your life is being disordered or even destroyed by your passions and desires? Or do you feel just tired of trying to live the right kind of life in your own power and strength? Jesus is inviting you to surrender, to unite your life with his, that you might find your restless soul satisfied in him and live your life for him and for others. So may the Holy Spirit produce in us the fruit of self-control so that life and love in the Spirit becomes the story of our church story of our lives. May that be so. Let's pray. Maybe just think about that thing that you thought of that you're having trouble controlling for a moment. Maybe just hold that before God for a moment. Ask him what he would have you do. Can you invite him for fresh power from the Holy Spirit? Can you admit your powerlessness and invite his strength? Can you maybe think, who are you gonna call this week to tell them about this struggle, that you can invite them into it with you? What support structure do you need to create? What environments can you avoid? What new habits can you cultivate? How can you rely more and more on the power of the Spirit in you? Just talk about that with God for just a moment. We praise you, God, that you do not leave us alone, that you come with us into our situation and in the greatest act of self-control in the history of the world, Jesus Christ entered into death and hell and sin for us. We thank you that he died to defeat the power of sin. He rose to give us resurrection life in the spirit. Help us this week to not be those who just try to go it alone, do it it ourselves, but help us to be those who confess our need and our dependence and who rely on you for strength. We pray in Jesus' name.